Hi, I'm Gus Wallen, and this is not an overnight success. Brought to you by Shaw and Partners Financial Services. This is a podcast where we sit down with some very successful people from the world of business, entertainment, and sport, and chat about their life's journey and what got them to the position that they're in today. In today's episode, we are chatting with Maddie Johns. To a lot of people, Maddie is a footy-loving larrikin. To me, he's a bloke that I spent a lot of time with on Brecky Radio, a confidant and a man that I can always share a beer and a laugh with. Maddie has played rugby league in the NRL, across there in Super League, also State of Origin, and also played for his country. His second career has been entertainment, and some people say it's where he absolutely shines. In this chat, we speak about Maddie's family and growing up in The Hunter. We speak about him playing with his brother Andrew and how their relationship affected their careers. We talk about how football was more than just a sport to Maddie and to the people of Newcastle in their toughest times, and Maddie's somewhat controversial move to go overseas and how that affected him. We also talk about his second career in media and our eight years spent together doing Brecky Radio. We speak about his family and both of his sons now playing professionally. Maddie is energy. He's a character and he's thoroughly entertaining. As for all of these podcasts, Shaw and Partners have generously donated $10,000 to the charity of choice to each of our guests. We discuss who gets that money in this chat. The executive producer of this podcast is Keisha Pettit, with production assistance from Kelly Stubbs and Brittany Hughes. Let's get on with our chat with Maddie Johns. Maddie Johns, welcome to the podcast. How are you, mate? Here we are again, Gus. <laughs> we are. Here we are again. We spent a lot of time together. We had a lot of good times. We did. We'll get to that in a sec. I want to talk to you initially on your childhood. You know, yep. for people that don't know, where did you grow up? What was your family set up? Okay. I was, uh, no, by the way, that's my uh, yes. dog barking in the yeah, background. That's, okay. that's all right. Hey, Charlie. <laughs> this is what she tends to do, right? She's. She's a guard dog. Hey! Oh, people are listening. Yeah, what a tyrant. <laughs> yeah. 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 Now, Gus, I grew up in uh, Hunter Valley in Cessnock. It was funny growing up there. It's such a different town than what it was back then. It was, I mean, back then it was coal mining, uh, steel mills. Uh, I think there were three or four vineyards growing up. Now there's, what, mm. 200? But uh, Dad was a coal miner. You know, they really battled. I think they had me 18, 19. So I look at that now and I look at myself having, you know, Jack when I was 24, something like that, and I, go, I look at myself going, I'm a baby, so I can't yeah. imagine with mum and dad. Mm. And, uh, you know, different. T- uh, the, dad played rugby league at Cessnock. He had some difficult times. He remember broke his leg once. He couldn't go down the coal mine. So there were little things like that, but really happy childhood. Just always, you know, playing sport, cricket, rugby league, soccer, always something on the go. Good mates. Yeah, back in those days, yeah, mum and dad would just say to me and Andrew, right, what he's up to today, we'd say, don't really know, we'll hop on our bikes and we'd just take off and come back about eight o'clock that night. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? The best. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so it was a, it was a good, good childhood, very close-knit family. Got a sister who's 10 years my junior. Mm. So um, it's good and I get up there as much as I can. I was up there just recently. Uh, we had a John's family Christmas up there, which was uh, – Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I remember meeting your sister because she obviously everyone knows Andrew mm. through footy and, and obviously he's gone into the media like you have. But we met your sister when we had a grill team function up in the Hunter, which was a hell of a weekend. 
Yes. You can remember the yes. spa bath with it looked more like a laxer. <laughs> Mate, that was well, one thing we did do well on the grill team was our trips away. Yeah. We used to remind ourselves how much how much fun we had and how well we all got along. It was just it was such great fun. Nothing better. I remember your sister because she's sort of the one that I knew you had, but I hadn't met her before. But she's pretty special, isn't she? Yeah, she is. And she was a very good sports. Uh, sportsman herself, she was uh, played netball, very very good. Played a little bit of representative netball, just sort of dropped off. And then recently, um, she got into playing rugby league. Can you believe? Oh, really? At what age? Oh, late thirties. Wow! And uh, didn't end well. Oh, uh, she ended up with a dislocation of the hip. Oh, that is painful. <laughs> so we're like, Kate, looks easy on TV, doesn't it? <laughs> But she's uh, – but growing up, the family dynamics, of course, Dad worked – he worked dog watch in the coal mine, which was his shift would start something like midnight and he'd go through to 8 o'clock in the morning. Right. So there was a lot of my childhood growing up was – it was Dad being asleep. You know what I mean? Like he oh, was doing, working those shifts. And so uh, with Dad not there a lot, you know, I had to assume sort of the role as the father with Kate – one of the reasons we're so tight. And, of course, I acted as cartilage between my sister and my younger brother, Andrew, because <laughs> he would just stir the hell out of her. And uh, she'd be crying. And Aww. then the big brother would roll the sleeves up. And let's just say the younger brother would be crying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way it rolled. That's the way it rolls. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Things just don't change the dynamics. I remember – can I just detour for a second? Of course. <laughs> so – it's about 1995, we're at the Knights and we're doing this training session just before Christmas and Andrew's been a real ass, which he can be, and he's in a bad mood and he's throwing balls deliberately at teammates' feet and when they knock it out, he's given a rousing. So anyway, that night we've got a team dinner with all the wives, the girlfriends and so on and so forth. Anyway, the guys got in touch with me and said, we'd really prefer if Andrew didn't come. So I said, Okay. Right so I went to Joey and said, look, it's off. Yeah. Okay, no worries. So we still go. It's this beautiful Vietnamese restaurant, Derby Street in Newcastle. <laughs> so we're sitting there and we're having the meal and next minute I can hear someone like punching the glass outside the restaurant and I look and it's Andrew because he's walking past with his drop pick mates and seeing that, <laughs> that we've done it in, that we've double-crossed him, right? So, so anyway, he's yelling to me saying, come out, come out, you know, let's have a go. Anyway, I'm sitting there stunned and all the – all the people enjoying their meals sitting there. Look, yeah, what's going on here? So anyway, he takes off and I'm sitting there and I just start stewing on it. I don't know where he's going. He's going down to the Crickler's Arms, which was our local. So I said to Trisha, go down there. She's like, don't do it. So anyway, I, no, go down. I'll walk in. And he's there, of course, with those same dropkick mates, uh, birds of a feather. And I just say, righto. He goes, oh, here he is. Here he is. I said, get outside. So... <laughs> As he walked outside, I realised how drunk he was, which was great. So I had my first ever victory, right? So I hit him with a couple of lefts and a right and then hop in a taxi and leave. But then two days later, I get a call from Phil Rothfield, Buzz Rothfield, Sunday Telegram. He goes, Manny, how are you, mate? <laughs> he said, mate, I've um, got it on good authority that you and your brother had a bit of a blue. Um, now, is there any truth to that? And I said, Buzz, no, nah, no, nah, Newcastle's like, yeah. 
people telling tales. Because, mate, no, no, because I, I, I know a bloke there because, you know, I am from Newcastle and he told me it definitely happened. Buzz, I'm telling you, it didn't happen. Mate, I've got an eyewitness. Buzz, what did the eyewitness say? Oh, I reckon. He reckons you gave him a flogging. I said, actually, it is true. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one thing I hold over Joey's head. That and his uh, commentary rings me and goes, early days on the commentary, and says, mate, how do you think I'm going with the commentary? And I said, you can't be good at everything. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Were you always good at footy, you two? Was footy always going to be something that you're going to try to make some money out of, or was it just so much fun that you displayed it? Gus, I never knew that people got paid to play rugby league until 11 or 12. Mm. Because remember, Dad was talking to a guy out there called Don Schofield. Now, Don had played for Wes down here, but also gone away on a World Cup tour for Australia, a very good local legend. He was a plumber, and I was doing – about to do work experience. It must have been 12, 13. And Dad said, do you think he'll be able to make it as a professional footballer? And Don said, no, but I reckon he could make it as jockey. <laughs> <laughs> and Dad, when I was in the car, Dad was like, you know, talking about stuff. And he said, yeah, they get paid good money. I'm like, what? Even when I was – even when, Gus, I started playing first grade, I remember a teammate saying – said to me, you know, if they stopped paying me tomorrow, I wouldn't I – would, I'd quit. And I, I just couldn't understand that. As you start to get into your 30s, you, you get it. Mm. But at that point, you're just playing for fun. Was I a good player? I wasn't a good player growing up. And I still, even coming through and get closer, put it this way, if I'm against Anthony Mundine, some of the, I just can't compete because they're far more athletic. Mm. And I wasn't an athlete in any way, shape or form. But you've got to be smart. There's plenty of ways to skin a cat, right? You don't always win with athleticism. Sometimes you just you use your smarts. And that's why, like, you know, probably a little bit of a reach here, and I'm not comparing myself to that guy, but if you look at Mark War and Steve War, so when Mark War held a bat, you can just see, oh, mate, this guy's a natural. That's what he's born to do. Where Steve War was a battler and he built firewalls around his game, no hooking, no – and a lot of ways that's what I was like. I was smart enough to realise the things I was good at and the things that – I was no good at and sort of built firewalls around that and built my game around that. And so that's where like a lot of times I'll do coaching with young playmakers and I'll come in and say, talk to me, tell me how you're feeling because you've been through it yourself and you know the process as opposed to like I'll talk sometimes with Joey with football and he's incredibly smart but his idea of football is simplistic and I don't mean that in a bad way. He looks at a defender and goes, you know, I'll, I'll analyse you know, this defender and he goes, Matty, when he looks tight, I'll fucking run at him. You know what I mean? Yeah, simple as that. It, it's like, it's, a, it's simple. But, you know, I had to agonise over things. But my reward for that was for that I can talk to young playmakers and in, in a minute understand what they need. I love that. Can you remember the, la- the, the first time that you and Andrew played together? Because you were being a bit older. Yep. Did he play up with you or did you used to watch him and then play your game after? What was that as you were growing up? When Dad started coaching St. Patrick's Cessnock, they didn't have an under fives, under sixes, under seven. It was only under nines. So I was five and I started playing under nines. Oh, and wow. then one day we were short and Joey just turned three and, he, and they put him on the wing. Right? <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. he just, the old man just said, get him out there, right? Dad tells the story they're still wearing nappies. Wow. 
don't know if that was true or just an exaggeration because we have got the propensity to put a bit of propriga on stories. Yeah, a little mayo, that's okay. So, but, I, but Dad says when he got grabbed, Joey got the ball, I threw in the ball and they grabbed him and Joey yelled out, held. <laughs> but as far as the top level, we never played together for a fair while until we had a young reserve grade side in about round two or three in 93, they put us in together. And I remember just going, man, this is easy when you're playing with your brother because you just know you've grown up together, you've got the same principles and ideas about the game and you watch, I could see the way he catches a ball and moves a certain way, I knew what he was going to do. Mm. And where when you play with other halves and you haven't got that understanding, you need to communicate a lot more, it can be difficult. And sometimes you have disagreements, which can be difficult in the field. Whereas when, when it's with your brother, there's so much understanding. But then, you know, if he stuffs up or does something I don't like, you just get into each other. Your brothers, it's forgotten in an instant. Yeah. So what had happened, I went up into first grade. Joey still remained in reserve grade, which he absolutely hated, and I fucking loved. Oh, right? man. <laughs> who, who was the halfback in first grade? Uh, it was Matty Robble. Okay. So next year in 1994... Right, this is a very typical Andrew story about how ruthless he is. So we're playing final trial game of the year against Cronulla at uh, Shark Park, whatever it was called then. Endeavour Field back yeah, in the day. Yeah, had a few incarnations. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, we're playing and we're battling. We're battling. Things just aren't going smooth. And I threw the ball to Matty Robble and Paul Bugger went to step and boom, did his ACL. I remember as they were carrying him off the field in the stretcher, Joey ran past and was like, yes, let's go. And I'm like, you coarse <laughs> bastard, you know what I mean? Yeah. But I remember when he came on the field, nothing against uh, Rocket Robwell, but it was just everything just clicked, bang. Everything just changed. And I remember just going, oh, this is easy. Mm. And then the following week we played uh, round one, we had uh, South Sydney Football Stadium and they just won the two-is challenge, the, uh, the pre-season comp against the Broncos. And everyone's going, oh, mate, it's going to be a South year. They're going really good. And Joey, it was the night before the game. He was on debut. And I said, mate, you just got to be mindful. This is not reserve grade. This is first grade, mate. So don't expect too much. He scored 23 points, club record. <laughs> <laughs> on debut. It's like, told you, mate. Yeah. <laughs> but as is the way with rugby league, the next week we play West at home who were a side at best expected to finish mid-table at very best. And they got this old experienced side, Paul Amag, Jason Alchin, and Joey had the worst game of his life. They just sledged him, got into him, hit him late. And so it's a lesson. That's professional sport and rugby league for you. One minute you're at the top, you're at the apex, and the next minute you're in the basement. Yeah, yeah. From that moment on, how quickly did you guys become the seven and six at Newcastle? You knew every week, every training yeah. that you were the guys. Yeah. How long did that take? Yeah, uh, look, I reckon probably mid-season when you – but still, Gus, like, yeah, you know, I, I always made sure that, you know, I'd, I'd say to guys who were coming into the team, you know, that 12 jersey you got, mate, you're only renting that. Eventually, one day, someone will come and take it. You don't, you don't own it. You have to – for you to stay in that jersey – Right, you got to keep paying the bills, meaning you got to play well. Mm. And that's always made sure when they handed me the six jersey, I remember just used to grab the badge and give a little kiss to go, right, out. I've got you, I'm not going to let you go. Yeah. And so we, we entrenched ourselves there. Early years, there were some really tough years, like you go down to play Canberra Raiders and we're just young guys and you, know, you run on the field. And it's Mullins, Meninga, Ruben Wicke, Nandruku, Ricky Stewart, Laurie Daly, Bradley Clyde. 
uh, Lazarus, Steve Walters, oh, and you're going, yeah. holy, can we call it off now? <laughs> yeah. But I remember running on the field, 93, 94, and looking across, and there was Mal Meninga, and I'm going, fucking Mal Meninga. <laughs> Do you shake his hand now and mate. say good day? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll yeah, wait to the end. Yeah, I know. And he first time he ran at me, I'm like tackled him, and it was like, I've said this plenty of times. It's like tackling your dad in the lounge room and come on, let's have a game. You know when someone's so much stronger than you. But yeah, but there was a lot of those tough years, Gus, where you're getting flogged and flogged and flogged and you're going. And mate, I'm not ashamed to say some of those floggings where you're actually out on the field and you're watching Ricky Stewart and those play and you go, I'll never be able to be as anywhere near that. And you walk in the sheds after the game, you've been beaten by 50 points and you go into the cubicle and you sit there and you, you, you literally shed a tear. You go, I'm so embarrassed. What just happened? And then you sort of go up, pick up, and get on with it. Yeah. So, did, did it, it mean even more the, the those moments of sadness or those emotions because it was Newcastle? Because you had grown up yep. being a Knights fan. Because you'd um, seen the whole club be created. I tell you what. Yes, I saw it being created. I was a big Balmain Tigers fan, but it's the local club. And what made it really special was that you knew so many of the people. I, when I ran on the field. I knew, I knew where my great uh, mate, who's no longer, with, uh, no longer with us, Phil Peak. I'd look over and see his mum and dad sitting in the same spot all the time, and I could give Barry a little wave, you know. And there was different people. I knew where mum and dad were. I knew where my nan was sitting. I knew where some of my dad beat mates were sitting. <laughs> I knew that. Like, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. you know everybody. Yeah. So you're out there. So it was more than just you're more than just a football team. And then there was some really special moments, like yeah, that run we had in '97 where. There were some really incredibly difficult things happening in the town. BHP had shut. Coal mines were on strike, so there was a lot of people out of work and doing it tough. And we just, we'd just we play a home game and there'd be like 25,000 every game. And you could feel like you know, the people, this is where people were getting their, their joy from. And so that's when you realise it's more than football. Yeah. It's, um, that must be the most amazing feeling running out. Yes. Like that, looking around, seeing all those people and yep. playing with your brother in front of 25,000. Yes. Yeah, it was some really special ones. We, in 95, we played Manly at home. And in those days, uh, the capacity was 29. They got 32 and a half in. They, and you ran on the field and you're like, yeah, whole, you know, like it was just – and you, you used to hear it sometimes. You'd be in the sheds or firstly when we would – when I would drive to the game, I knew how big a crowd it was going to be by how far the cars were parked at 11.30, and sometimes, mate, like, Gus, they'll, they'll park two k's from the ground, and you're going, yep, it's going to be a big crowd here today. Yeah. And you sort of get, that gets you in the mood to play, and then you get in the sheds, and it's like you can hear, like, the rolling thunder out there, you know, people getting in the mood. So I've got you ready it. to play. Oh, how awesome. What about 97? Mm. Pretty special. Yes. <laughs> a very special year for me personally was because to win that grand final, but then – Two weeks after that, Jack, my first son, Jack, being born. Yeah. Which when he plays for the Knights now, I go, man, time goes quick. <laughs> yeah. but and he's twice your size playing for the Knights too. He's- his dad's a great guy. Because <laughs> <laughs> my, my wife, I don't think I'm talking out of school here, because my wife was once engaged to Luke Egan, the professional surfer. Luke's yeah, in Navy Very good looking yeah, too. Gorgeous. gorgeous. I say all the time. I, and I piss Trish so off because when he comes on the TV, I go, oh, look at those blue eyes. Why? Why, oh, why did you leave that? But she, now he's married to Jess Yates. Oh. So I was going to work, say, how's Luke going? And yeah, it's 
So I always say, because Luke's about six foot three, I always, sometimes I wonder, I said, mate, if your hair was blonde, honestly, <laughs> Dave. <laughs> but well, he's yeah, done all right too for himself. He's hasn't done he? very, very well. Yeah. But yeah. It, um, it was a really special year. Given those circumstances of what the town was going through, and, and Gus, when we left from the bus to go from Newcastle to go down to Sydney. It so that was, was a Sid Fogg's bus. So you, there was no flying back then. You guys took the bus, took the bus. as a team and your managers and all that stuff. So when the, did you arrive in Sydney? We How arrived, close to the game? Yeah, we arrived on the Saturday at okay. lunchtime. So we left and there were miles of people at the ground. When we were leaving to get on the highway, mate, there were tens of thousands of people seeing us off. You know, a bloke holding up a sign, I still see it now going, one more round, one more round. <sighs> yeah. And Chief stood up, Chief stopped the bus and pointed and said, see that? We're not coming back, he loses. So we go down and we have a meeting. I've got to say, it was pretty, looking back on it, it was pretty uninspiring. Mm. Everyone was sort of like looking at their watches, you want to go to the movies and whatnot, you know, night for the game, going, oh, yeah, we're ready to go. Yeah, yeah, we're ready to go. So we're having dinner. Chief came and goes, mate, that was, that was dog shit. And I was like, yeah, it was. One. He goes, let's have another one. I said, another one of that? He said, no, no. He said, only the players. No one's allowed in but the players. So we jam into Chief's room. We're all jammed in there. He just goes, right out one by one, we're going to go around the room and I want you to tell us what it means to you to win this tomorrow. And he went around the room. Everyone was speaking so emotively. You know, and I tip my hat to blokes like Leo Danover and Brett Grogan. They should have been there. What they did for the team that year was incredible. We wouldn't have got there without like uh, Leo Danover. But Joey came back and they missed out. But the way they spoke you know, gave you strength. Made you feel so good, you know, that everyone's, you know, everyone's just pulling that same direction. And the last person I got to was Mark Lanville. And Mark Lanville puts his hand up himself and said, mate, I was a mercenary. I played for the money. And he said, that's what I did. I said, I played for the money. And he was one of the guys who said it to me. He said, if they didn't pay me, I wouldn't be here, I wouldn't play. So it got to him. He went to Mark Lanville last. And it was Mark Lanville's last ever game as a Newcastle Knight before he left to go to England. And he was one of the first players they'd ever signed. And in those early years, had a terrible run of injuries. Anyway, got to MG and there was just silence. Silence. Turn around, he can't talk because he's crying. <sighs> Joey jumped up in the bed and said, we've won. That's, I know. <laughs> That's so good. And that game, you know, playing, it was just, it felt... Inevitable, we're going to win. It just had, it's hard to explain. You know, they say the ideal performance state is completely forgetting your mindlessness. Forget about the scoreboard, forget about the crowd. You're just in the zone. And that's when I, I look back at the game and I say, I can't remember that. I cannot remember that. I can't remember. And I remember everything about football games right, that I played. But you're just in that zone. And Joey and I you always used to, we used to sit when we were kids and watch games together. And you're picking up tendencies of positions. And one of the big tendencies of wingers used to be, because they're, not, because they're on the fringes, they're not used to being at marker, that if you're standing on a sideline, right, the golden rule is if it's one marker, you, know, you don't chase because you know, a bloke could just go dummy and go up the short side. So we always had a theory that if there's one, if there's one person at marker and it's on the sideline, it's a winger, throw the dummy and go because they're not used to being there. We just sat on that five, ten years. Mm. And if you look at the last play, Hopper's a marker on the sideline and Joey dummies and goes up the sideline and turns into Albion scores. So it was just surreal. And after the game, I don't remember anything of the, the lap of honour. It was pandemonium, people just running on the field. Yeah. People were almost like off their heads. 
running, just going. Just with this, just happiness. And they tell me in the town it was the same. There were people just uh, stories of people just hopping in their cars and driving around the town with no, like, just like, what am I doing? Just had to, as an outlet, for just something. And coming back into the city, I knew it was going to be big because all back in the days at the roundabouts heading around that Gosford Way, there would be. Uh, well, they'd have roundabouts there as opposed to lights, and all the roundabouts were full of parties. And as we're getting close to Newcastle, there's more and more people on the side of the road, and we end up getting off there about 30,000 when you got off the highway. And then when we went into the city centre, it was chaos. They're saying, yeah, it could have been 100,000 people there. And there were people, again, just going crazy, Climbing, trying to get onto the bus, but climbing onto these old oak trees and jumping from the oak trees on top of the bus and trying to kick. The, they wrote the bus off. Did they? They wrote, they wrote the it off. The old Sid Fog, gone. Gone. <laughs> but it, it, was, uh, it was really special. And those sides, Gus, for me, it wasn't professional sport. I, ne- I never knew what professional sport was until I left and went away and realised sometimes professional sport sometimes is – not really enjoying the circumstance you're in, but have to perform anyway. Mm. Or not necessarily liking some of the people you're playing alongside, but being professionally getting on with it. Whereas at Newcastle, it was family. Yeah. It's like when I watch Penrith now, it's family. Melbourne, it's family. Best teams aren't teams, they're families. Yeah, I love that. So magical moment, obviously winning that. I remember living in Moorunga, the last street on the freeway, and everyone wanted you to beat Manly that day, believe me, because the Dravoyevichs weren't playing from them. Yes. That's why I like Manly now. Anyway, I walked up the end of my street, so just as you would have come down, turned right onto the freeway to get your 110 at last, that's where I was standing, and there was another 20 people, and most of them were rugby union fans yeah. that just enjoyed the game and they were happy that you had won. And we just all looked at each other as the buses turned the corner and up, the, up towards Gosford and Newcastle. I think they're going to have a good night tonight. It was a good night. It was a good week. I was going to say it was a good few nights. It was it was really good. And Jack was born, must have been the week after the grand final, the week after, because we went, we are just having such a good time. Trish was pregnant. Anyway, Trish went into uh, NIB hospital up at John Hunter there. So I was sort of going up there. I was going having a good time celebrating Mad Monday, Mad Tuesday, Mad Wednesday, <laughs> Thursday. And I was going up. Going, hey, how you going, Trish? You're right. Anyway, <laughs> it's so good of you to check in on her. <laughs> you know what I am, mate. Yeah. You know. <laughs> anyway, so I would go up, and after Jack was born, Trish was in there for another week, and the nurses went, "Look, don't go home. We'll just put a bed in there with Jack and Trish." So I stayed for a week at the hospital with Trish and Jack. So I would go, you know, in that second week get on the sauce, have a drink, and then come back to the hospital that night and stay. And Trish, I could hear Trish sometimes going, don't let him in, don't let him in. And they'd be like, he's fine, he's fine. So even sometimes, you can talk to Trish about this, I'd go up there and I'd lay in bed, I'm starving. So I'd call the matron in and I'd say, can you order me a pizza? She oh, goes, mate. I swear to God. And she go, yep, no worries. And, she, and Trish go, what are you doing? What, don't get him a pizza? Goes, oh, he's fine, don't worry about it. Anyway... They said to Trish once, mate, you're able to leave and go home. I said, I said, let's stay for another two days. <laughs> we did. It was so good. Nicely milked. It was so good. Yeah. So that happens, Maddie. You're at Newcastle. We need to fast forward this a little bit yes. because of timing, but you then 
leave Newcastle. Mm. You have a couple of stints. You stint in England with Wigan, one of the great yep. rugby league clubs of all side. Yep. Meet a best friend of yours there. And then you have a stint at Cronulla. Yep. What was it like over in England? And of course, meeting, you know, someone now that is, you know, your best mate. I reckon Gus, for the first half I was over there, I wasn't in good shape mentally. Okay. I wasn't in good shape. What had happened was, and as I just said here before, the best teams aren't teams, they're families. So I was at the Knights, and you make the mistake. Of, so, you know, I said, you know, you're only renting a jersey. Well, after a certain while, when you've had the jersey that long, you're wearing grand finals, you actually start to think you own the house. That was where I was. And we'd had success for a number of years, and 2000 season come. I don't know what it is. I had just no – it's like I had no gas in the tank. I, I couldn't push myself tr- through training. I ended up picking up injuries. It was a real, it was a really tough season, right off season. And then halfway through the year, rightfully so, they're like, you know, he's getting to that age now. We've got all these young guys coming through. We've got to make a tough decision. And that sort of sparked a lot of uproar and there was a lot of distractions and so much going on. And the, ultimately, you're forced out of the family. And so you get there and I, and I signed to go over a Wigan. And it wasn't until I got to Wigan I realised mentally I wasn't in a, a good state. Mm. And then as time went by and we'd start to, you know, a little bit more time away, you start to get more comfortable in that environment and way of doing things. Every team does things differently. I had a good back end of the year and I felt better. But after that season, coming back to Newcastle, felt weird. Mm. And, and You're still feeling a little upset? Put it this way. It was almost what it was, Gus, and it really hit home to me. When we went there around five that year with Cronulla to play Newcastle there, the day before we had a captain's run at the ground, Chris Anderson took us, and I said to Chris Anderson, I don't know whether was, I was conscious of this or it was an unconscious thing, I just said, mate, I'm going to get a taxi to the ground early, an hour early before the captain's run for training. I just, you know, I don't know, I just want to, I want to go there. And when I went there, like a lot of those emotions started to come back, and I'm like, oh, wow. This what's going on here, and it was just all that. I think a lot of the things that I hadn't dealt with about leaving the family, going out, I just suppressed it. And when I went to that ground, I sat there at that ground for an hour and just sat and just had all these things going through my mind. And I reckon it was probably when the side turned up, the Cronulla side for our captain's run, I dealt with it. I know it sounds really simplistic and only been about an hour, but that hour is like you're just mulling through stuff and you're starting to reason with yourself and you're starting to say, well, hang on a second, Matty, you know, what's more important, a trophy if you stayed at Newcastle and meeting the greatest mate of your life in Brian Carney and you start to work that out. And, you know, Brian and I become really tight mates over there because he was a Gaelic footballer from Ireland who came over and eventually ended up at Wigan and he still wasn't totally sure of the rules and, certain things and nuances of the game. So we'd hang around after training for an hour and we'd run through things, we'd chat about certain things and real simple things that I took for granted in the game that he had to learn. Mm-hmm. And we just become just such great mates. And um, I see him, speak to him all the time, went over there one year. And it's a, he's a really interesting guy. And I realised he was part of the reason I enjoyed that back half of the year at Wigan because I actually took my eyes my focus off football, and he's a really interesting guy. So he'd be going, yeah, well, we should go over to – dip over to Eastern Europe and see my dad. His dad owns a, an Irish pub literally on the Ukrainian border on the Hungarian side, a little town called Nirachaza. So we went there for Christmas one year. So he'd be talking about things like that. Like his dad was doing 
at one point had a building contract with Yasser Arafat in Palestine. Wow. So he's had all this life, amazing life. Mm. And so to immerse yourself, you sit there and you talk about those things and his brothers that live in New York and his other brother that lived in Bermuda and all these different things. So it was oh, I was good for him as far as football, but as far as life and realising there's a lot more to life than just rugby league, he was good for me. Just quickly interrupting the episode to say a very big thank you to the sponsor of this podcast, and that is Shaw & Partners Financial Services. Shaw & Partners are an Australian investment and wealth management firm who manage over $28 billion of assets under advice. With seven offices across Australia, Shore & Partners act for and on behalf of individuals, institutions, corporates and charities. For more info, you can check out their website at shoreandpartners.com.au. That's S-H-A-W for sure. Shore & Partners Financial Services, your partners in building and preserving wealth. And let's get back into the episode. Well, there's one thing I learned in the eight years we're together on, you know, waking up early together, yeah. you know, five o'clock in there. It's a tough time to do stuff. And you said to me one day, when it all sort of ended, which was sad at the time, but I can understand it now, said, Gus, it's like we met in fifth grade in primary school and then we finished at the HSC. Yes. That, that's, that's fifth grade, sixth grade, then you're six years of secondary school. And once you said it like that, I'm like, mate, it just didn't seem that long to me. But the one thing I learned about you in that eight years, many things, but one of the things is, and our listeners loved about you, was that you are so well read and you aren't just rugby league. In fact, you've got a story or you've got an interest, and if you get an interest, you then absolutely read everything about it, yes. look it up, yep. always looking for experts to help you. Has that always yeah. been something that – or is that something that Brian gave you or – I'll tell you what it was, Gus. It was uh, – since I was a young kid, I was just surrounded by football, surrounded by it. And by the time – I knew time was up in my last year because you'd – some people would understand this. You'd understand with what you do, Gus, is that – Sometimes you just put your head into something something different and you go, God, that feels good. Like I remember one day, Trish and I had the, the boys out. It's about two-thirds of the way through the final season I was playing. I didn't know I was going to quit then, but walked into a photography shop. Now, I hate photography, <laughs> but I remember just going, wow, how good's this? Look at that. Look at that picture that someone took. Look at this. and Wow, what's that camera? And what it was, it was my brain telling me, hey, mate, Enough of the football thing, mate. You need to push forward, get on with something else. And I did. And so when I finished, I haven't got a lot of interest, Gus. Like uh, I don't play golf and that. Yeah, so we've, f- se- we've seen that recently. Yeah, seen that. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've play- never seen someone so talented at one thing being really bad at something. Like most people have some yeah. clue. Yeah, I know. I Surely know. you were playing up to the cameras. No, it wasn't. <laughs> I say to people, I play golf like I'm chopping wood, and I chop wood like I'm playing golf. Yeah, it's awful, <laughs> mate. <laughs> Yeah, Gus, I'd, I'd had enough. And so one of the things for me was reading. So reading history, you know, finding rare bookstores, going and buying these obscure books and reading it, having an appreciation. For We're sitting in your beautiful house here, and the amount of books you have is incredible. You yeah. read all of those? I reckon most of them yeah. I get through. Trisha look comes down here and sees it because I love that. You know, I love the big case and all the books. I love and it. She goes, "Oh, it's getting too full. Let's throw some of them out." And I said, "Mate, you don't burn <laughs> books. You just don't give them away. You don't, right? You don't, no. Yeah, it's good. I used to be you know, get into originally through sporting biographies and whatnot, but then 
really the history's the one I, I enjoy. Yeah, that's what yeah. we used to love about you yeah. coming and say, right, I need a couple of breaks tomorrow yeah. and we're going to talk about this. And it was Russia yeah. or yeah. it was Germany or yeah. it was something like that, something that interests you. Yeah. Maddie, will there be a book about you one day that you decide to write? No. Okay. No. I've been through it once. It's hard enough. I'm not going there again. I now, uh, it, I have no desire to, Gus. Because you go, you come into the house, you'll see, like I have no jerseys and any. Well, you give them all away. Yeah, I give a lot. I literally remember one day you came to my place for a barbecue and you gave Jack yeah. a country ball from a country city game. Yeah. And then you went, and then one of his mates was there, and you're like, oh, hold on for a second. You went back to the car yeah. and you got him a jersey. I think it might have been an Australian one. Yeah. And Jack was no, like, it was I got a country jersey. Yeah, okay, yeah. But Jack was like, I got the ball. I wanted the jersey. I said, just be happy with what you've got. But you're so generous with that stuff. Well, I mean, what it's are not you a jersey, like you say, hanging. Nah. You wouldn't know if you were a footballer. No. Nah. Well, what are you going to do with a Gus, too? You know, we, we'd sometimes get there, and I'd have it probably a, a dozen on board, but you get you get a billet, and he's a nice young bloke, and you say, mate, yeah, you want a state of origin jersey? And he'd go, oh, yeah. <laughs> I'd come down and say, go on, mate, it's yours. The next day I go, shit, I might have to go to him and say, hey, listen, mate, that was only a joke. I'm like, nah. But what do you do? I mean, what do you do with your jersey? So I suppose what I'm saying there is, is that, mate, I just focus on – Going forward, that's what I like to do. And anything for me that really diving into, I mean, it's different here because it's immediacy, just, but to actually go through the whole thing of go, tearing your life apart and, and agonizing over this, that, and the other, mm. I just got to leave, mate. As we just said, mate, the time we had on radio, Gus, it was like being in fifth class and then going through, we called it quits at the end of year 12. Mm. And how quick that time went compared to how it felt when we were in year five into 12. <laughs> it felt like two lifetimes. So, for, so I just think life's too short to sit there and write a book about yourself. Yeah, no, fair enough. <laughs> I'd rather just talk about myself. Yeah, and you do that pretty good, to be quiet, to be honest. Maddie, let's talk briefly about your media career because obviously we had that time on the grill team and that was fantastic fun. And, you know, people say to me now, look, you know, that was my favourite time. Yeah. You know, a lot of people grew up with us and enjoyed that time with us and we did a lot of stuff. New York trip. We, we, that we, was great fun. We, we could do a whole episode on that. But let's talk about now your life at Fox because you've not only got your own shows and you're now doing the podcasts and you've yep. got your one-on-ones and that sort of stuff. People have said to me, that's where they think you're absolutely at your best, mm. doing what I'm doing with you now, yep. having these type of discussions. Mm. How much do you enjoy doing those? I do enjoy it. I, I like – because, you know, like you are, guys, you're curious about people. And I, I generally – only interview on those shows people that I like. Yeah, people like, uh, respectful. Yeah, respect. I tell you, because I, what motivates me to sit down and prepare an interview is wanting that person to look good. Right? And I've had been offered once or twice different people and I just go, I'm just, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a big fan and I don't want to like, Act like I'm, you know, it's, a, it's a always my thing. You want it to be authentic. Loving, but I want it to be authentic. And, and to be honest, I don't want to spend two days researching someone I don't really like. Mm. Uh, so different people, we've done, some of it can be straightforward preparing those interviews because you know them well. Others, uh, you get there, Gus, and like, I honestly had like a panic attack before doing Lauren Jackson because I, I knew the breadth of her work, but then... Leading up to the interview, I went and bought a book and sat down, and you're just going, "Oh my god!" Yeah, and then you went, "Oh my god!" It's a lot. And there was just so much, and it was impossible to do it all justice. So I, I when we went to her house, we sat and I said, "Look, Lauren, I'm going to hand handpick pieces from your career, and a lot of it isn't going to be in order. 
So, but I said, I just can't sit here. It'll go for three hours. And she said, I totally understand. And so there's, there's elements like that. There's a guy who, I don't know if he's reached out to you, but he was looking to Sir John Kerwin. Yeah. John Kerwin, the All Black, who interviewed him. That was intriguing because I remember looking at JK when he played for the All Blacks going, mate, this bloke's Superman. Ultra yeah. confident. Yet here he is talking about how he, through his whole All Black career, battled mental illness. He had an imposter syndrome. And you're going, my God. So that sort of stuff, yeah, that gives you, as you know, gives you satisfaction, Gus. It does. And, and the fact that you're interested in it and that comes across, and I think people who know you as well, as soon as I say, you know, they're talking about the grill team, they put a smile on their face. They love yeah, MG. Good they fun. love you. They watch your shows now and stuff. So it's like it's a pleasurable thing to think about you and your career and what right. you're doing and so forth. And, of course, you know, you make a family out of those guys that you yes. had at Newcastle on the couch now, yep. you know, whether it's Gordy or Fletch That's right. or whether it's Hindy. And you, everyone you bring in, you do make them feel comfortable enough for them to just be themselves. Well, is, that, you is, know, that, is that a conscious thing that you do? I think so. Like, I, I just I, – what I learned from those years at Newcastle is that just if you are like a family, everyone gets on really good and everyone's comfortable around each other. It's, it just produces a certain chemistry that works. And Gus, like there were times that we went in the grill team that we were semi-sober, <laughs> <laughs> totally unprepared. Oh, yeah. Had no idea we are going to talk about, but we just sit there and we just start to talk. And things that, mate, we would just laugh. And it was some of our best stuff, like in New York, New York City, we went down there and honestly, we're just, we'd gone out, we, we were – Honestly, for a boxer, we're wobbling on the ropes and we're sitting there and we start the show. We go, what are we going to talk about? And we just started talking and laughing. It was nominated for a radio award. It was. We should have been locked up. <laughs> In fact, I think Pagey was that night. He was. He was. <laughs> Remember that time that Pagey was like, he was in a dumpster or something that first night? He went. Yeah. He went downtown and he was having a chat to a fella who said was a good bloke. <laughs> And then something happened and Pagey basically woke up the side of the road with no wallet. And uh, <laughs> they did throw his passport back, though. That was that, good. They did. That was very kind they of did. them. They did. They did. Let's talk about, just briefly, about family for you. It's yeah. so important. And your dad in particular, mm. because I've met him a few times, such a character. He's yep. the type of guy that if you meet him for a few hours, mm. he's the perfect guy, right? Yep. That mate's dad that you meet and so forth. Yep. Your mum and dad, let's talk about them for a moment. You spoke about your dad and obviously what sort of job and stuff that he had. Mm. What sort of influence did he have in terms of your footy and what sort of influence did your mum have in terms of you being you? Mate, we – I'll say firstly on dad with, with football. Uh, we coached just when, when I was very young, but he sort of he, – he steered clear a little bit, like – as we started to get on at the nights, there were times that, you know, that we'd get there and I could see he was feeling the pressure, like, you know, you got one son out there is one thing, but have two out there and in high pressure and we just, Dad, don't worry about it, you know, it's fine. It was, I, I reckon, Dad told me, Mum and Dad told me this, they said that by the time Joey had retired, they'd had enough. When I talk about me going into that photography store and going, I need something different, for them, they were sick of sitting in the grandstand 
and hearing criticism of their sons, which is just the way it happens. It's like I'm not – this is certainly not a poor me thing. It just happens. But mum and dad, like at times, difficult periods through Joey's career and people – and Joey's sort of that gregarious character that's going to draw criticism and people would be giving it to Joey in the grandstand, things like that, and dad and mum and dad are just sitting there. And dad's pretty fiery. So I've seen him once or twice grab blokes after games and – so we'd be – they just said that when Joey retired for them, it was just a, such a relief. Mm. It was like, it's done. And then with our two boys going back in again. Well, yeah, so first, I'll say quickly about my mum. So I get a lot of the football from my dad and knocking around with him and all his mates. And, and my love of a good time comes from my mum because my mum had us, you know, me, I think, as I said, about 19, I think she was. And so I always grew up around music – her having parties at the house, having friends around, dancing, singing, and she's still like that, Mum. Mm. So I get that sense of fun from her. Yeah, but and your dad's punching massively too. Oh, mate, dad like, looks dad looks a hundred, and your mum looks forty five, mate. It's when I it's say amazing. People, this is my mum. They outright they refuse to believe <laughs> yeah, it. It's right. I know. Yeah. Beautiful, just so beautiful, inside and out. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you about you and Trish now with two sons playing rugby league, both professionals, one with Newcastle now. Yep. And obviously, you know, Coop's down there at the Storm. What's it like now? Because I know when Jack made his debut, how nervy you were and Mm. what's it like? Gus, you have to – you've got to have the discipline to actually completely push yourself away from it. And that's – now I'm settled. That's what I've done. What was hard originally – because you're going through it all yourself and you see the pothole where the potholes are, you know, there's certain things like they play a good game. I see a little bit flippant the next week. To have the discipline to just let them step in the pothole, let them learn the lesson. That's what I've been able to do. There's only one time that I sort of half intervened unbeknownst to Jack was that he was making his debut for South against the Raiders in Canberra, Saturday night at 7.30. Tough road trip. Yeah. Fair chance it's going to be sprinkling with rain. Even if it isn't, it's going to be a really slippery surface. So you've got to have your long studs on. And because I carried, when I went to a game, I had five pairs of boots in. So I knew what boots to wear at every single ground. I'd have the long screw-ins for, for Canberra. I'd have the sort of half screw-ins for if I was playing at Wollongong. I had the yeah, longer moulders, shorter moulders. So I said to Jack, it's Canberra and that, how you feeling? Feeling good. I said, how many pairs of boots you got? One. Right, he's he's got one he's got one pair of football boots, and I go, oh yeah. So you haven't got any you haven't got any long studs. You haven't got any screw in studs. No, nah, what do I want those for? Oh no, no, I said no, no, it's just wondering. <laughs> so I go back and I ring Asics, who is his sponsor, and I said, listen, can you just do me a favour here? Can you send a pair of screw in boots with a note congratulating on his debut? Oh, that's nice. so Jack. They came through. He goes, oh, the Asics just sent me a pair of boots. Congrats. Unreal. I said, oh, would you believe they're screw-ins? <laughs> this, maybe, you should, maybe you should wear those during the game. <laughs> so as I'm watching you warm up, I look at the studs. And I said, fucking hell, he's wearing the short studs. He goes, oh, you got it on. <laughs> but now, Gus, I don't even get nervous before they play okay. anymore. My discipline is what I say to myself, mate, you've been through it once before. You don't want to go through it again, and it's time for them those boys to go through it. Yeah. And that's what they do. Yeah. I get nervous for yeah. your two sons, for Mav Gaia, for the Travoyevich boys. I all the boys that I know yep. and that I like and I've got some sort of personal connection with 
I actually go for them, even if it's I, maybe not to beat the Roosters, but I want them yeah. to have a good game. Well, I'm, I'm really like, I think I'm really proud about Jack as how he's had to fight his way back. Like, you know, he's just started playing first grade for the night after this long laugh, which a lot of people don't know what had occurred. Mm. So what had happened during the off-season, at the back end of the year, he'd had a bit of shoulder drama. He went and got a check and they said, we think it'd be wise for you to have a shoulder reconstruction. Big operation. So he gets it done, has the shoulder operation. He has it done in Queensland because they're in the bubble at the time. Has a couple of days at Gordy's place with Gordy and his brother. He said he couldn't believe how much they drank. <laughs> I said, mate, and you're only there. For, you're there for the entree. Yeah. Um, and he comes comes back, shoulder feels okay. Then a week later, it's a little bit sore. Two weeks later, where it should be starting to prove it's not. So I'm laying there in bed one night and I just thought, oh, I had a hunch. I went down. While he's asleep, put my hand on the shoulder and it was burning. Right. I went, Jesus, here we go. So first thing in the morning, we rushed to a hospital. Anyway, they're operating on him that afternoon. It was just full of infection. So from there, there I mean, the, his career was in doubt. And what they did, uh, it was drama after drama. One of the things they had to do was put a thing called a pick line in. So he, they, put a, they put a line into a vein and weaved it up through his arm and into his heart and for six weeks had to be fed antibiotics. So every single day the nurses, God bless them, would come here and they would have to change over the antibiotics, and that was six weeks. Mm. Gus, and he lost 12 kilos. He doesn't know whether it, you know, what exactly the future's going to be. He's had some people telling him, oh, mate, those things never get better. Mm. So all those things, you know, I get up in the morning and go down and say, hey, mate, how are you going? <laughs> yeah, I'd say what his reply would often yeah. be. But then... He's got back now, he's worked his way back, so he's on his way. That's the thing that makes me proud, is to actually go through that. that that's serious adversity that he's had to endure there and come through the other side. Yeah, I remember texting you through that and you were just saying, we just got to get him through, we just got to get him through. That's yeah. when your yeah. role as a dad really came into play, and Trish, of course, being yeah. a yeah. super mum. Let's do the quick five. Gotcha. Your favourite quote, Maddie. Is there a quote or a saying or a bit of advice that someone gave you that you went, you know what, I like that, I'm going to use it? Okay, this one isn't a favourite quote, but I just like this one. You know, it involves when you're a bit of strife in your life. It says, when you're up to your neck in shit, don't make waves. <laughs> Very sensible. And I said to my wife, I'm always, she goes, oh, what are you up to now? I said, as you know, Trish, I'm always on hot water. That's why I look so clean. <laughs> Have you got a favourite holiday destination, Maddie? Gus, I love my happy place is Port Stephens, Shoal Bay, Fingal Bay. Spent five months of the year in a car- living in a caravan park up there with the family. Yeah. Just great memories. Recently, I said to Trish, I'm going to go away for a few days. I went up there and stayed at the Lord Admiral Inn. Well, you at, just uh, literally needed to get away. Just, just wanted Because you do that a little bit. I, do, I just wanted to get away and I just wanted to drive around those streets and go and have a swim and the, all the things I used to do. So that, that's a beauty. And, you know, we, we love the travelling to the big places and great cities and that, but that makes me feel warm. Yeah, beautiful. Favourite book, if you can pick one out of the thousand you've read. Favourite book? I'm just looking at two books. Two books on Molly Meldrum. We haven't got it long enough for us to tell your Champion. stories about you and him. Champion Molly, yes. Uh, do you know what? I, I love, I really love the um, autobiographies and biographies on uh, rock stars. 
yeah, and, and oh, music bands. Yeah. There's a really good one by Jeff Apter called Friday on My Mind. It's the rise of the Easy Beats and morphing into ACDC about the Youngs. Oh, that that's a great book. Recommend love it. That. I remember I used to love your little taking us back down memory lane on the grill team. Um, favorite movie, Maddie? Well, there's a couple that come to mind. All right, I'll do three that I really enjoy. Sideways, which yeah. is the book, you know, great movie. Yeah. Yeah, two mates going for a drive around uh, in the Napa Valley is a Bucks weekend together. Yeah. Great, mate. It's very, very funny. The English version of that, which is, isn't a direct takeoff, but I reckon, I reckon that's what they did. The Steve Coogan movie called The Trip, which they tried oh, yeah. in the of England. Very, yeah. very good. And the other one is Midnight in Paris. I just reckon that's it. Great, great movie. Always been one of your faves. Fave. So, Maddie Sean, Partners Financial Services, great supporter of Gotcha for Life, great supporter of us. They've got $10,000 to give away to a charity of your choice. Yep. Can you tell us who you'll give that to and what you think they'll do with the money? MND, which is Motor Neurons Disease in Australia, their company. We've done a little bit, myself and Trish, with those guys before, given the charity, because it's a really important one for me. It's just, in my opinion, one of the most despicable diseases, Motor Neurons. My grandmother, who's one of the great heroes of my life, June, she was a woman who um, raised my mum and my uncle pretty much by herself. She ran a pub by herself in uh, Mudgee. And uh, she was just, you know, during difficult times with our family, with mum and dad, like she would just take on, she'd pick me and uh, myself and Joey after school. She'd take us to football. She, yeah, she was literally our second mother. She was so good. And then she, we started to pick up at one point that she was had trouble with talking and speaking, and it, she was diagnosed with motor neurons. And to see her, just see what she endured was just heartbreaking. There's two things my grandmother absolutely loved in life: she loved good food and good conversation. Right, they're two things, and that disease that robbed her of both. So, yeah, I'd like to donate to that. Fantastic, mate. Good company, good food, and maybe a little something-something as well, a little drinky to go with it. You got it. Matty, thank you so much. We could literally have spoken for hours. We haven't even touched on so much other stuff you've done, but, mate, thanks for joining us on Not An Overnight Success. Champion, Gus. Loved it, mate. Loved it. Good on you, mate. Coming up next on a Not An Overnight Success is Season 3. We're here already, and how exciting is that? We've got another 10 incredible people to introduce you to in the coming months. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we ask that you share it with someone who you think might get something out of it. You can also subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you're listening on so that our episodes update as they are released. A big thank you to Shaw and Partners Financial Services who have generously supported this podcast and also donated $10,000 to the charity of choice of each of our guests to thank them for their time. Shaw and Partners are an Australian investment and wealth management firm who manage over $28 billion of assets under advice. With seven offices around Australia, Shaw & Partners act for and on behalf of individuals, institutions, corporates and charities. For more info, you can check out their website at shawandpartners.com.au. That's S-H-A-W for sure. Shaw & Partners Financial Services, your partners in building and preserving wealth.